This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 478th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most remarkable actresses of our time, or for that matter, any other. You may have previously heard her on this podcast in 2020, during the thick of COVID lockdown, which forced us to record our conversation via Zoom. I was therefore extra thrilled to have the opportunity last week to sit down with her in person in front of a sold-out crowd of more than 2,000 people at Santa Barbara's historic Arlington Theater as part of the Santa Barbara International Film Festival's celebration of her as its outstanding performer of the year. I'm talking, of course, about the greatest thing to come out of Australia since koala bears, Kate Blanchett. Let's go now to audio of my introduction of and conversation with her there. I'm especially thrilled and honored to be here tonight because we get to celebrate one of the most remarkable actresses of our or any time. She is a woman who is being feted tonight with the Outstanding Performer of the Year Award for 2022 for her performance in Tar, having already won Best Actress Accolades for this performance from the New York, LA, and London Film Critics, National Society of Film Critics, and Critics' Choice Association, making her the only person who has ever won all five of those, and she's done it twice. But as we'll be reminded tonight, she could have received this Performer of the Year Award in virtually any of the 26 years in which she's been on the big screen and has garnered along the way eight acting Oscar nominations, two of which have resulted in Oscars and a third of which might next month. Now, having interviewed Kate a few times over the years, I know that she tends to minimize individual accomplishments like those that I've just cited. So I'm going to cite a statistic that shows just how much of a team player she is as well. With the Best Picture Oscar nomination that was bestowed last month upon Tar, the all-time record for any actress already held by Kate for most films starred in that have been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar increased from nine to 10. No woman ever has had more. And again, in the, I think the, it's not a coincidence that she's been at the center of that many standout films. She clearly and visibly makes everyone around her and the film she's in better. And I know Todd Field is in agreement about that. But don't take my word uh, for any of this. I'm going to read a few other quotes here that I think are relevant. Um, the New York Times once asserted about Kate, quote, like Meryl Streep, the actress she most resembles, she is a natural chameleon, close quote. Meryl Streep herself described Kate as, quote, an actress that is not only gifted and talented, but is, above all, a brave actress. I really admire her enormously, close quote. Russell Crowe called her the most spectacular creature that ever walked the planet. Leah Volman called her the best actor of her generation. Donald Sutherland went with the best actor in the world. Brad Pitt called her mesmerizing, exquisite, and otherworldly. George Clooney emphasized that she is the best actor 
working today, not actress, actor. And the late Time Magazine critic Richard Corliss once wrote, quote, years from now, when cinephiles are asked to name the movie's golden age, they'll say it was when Kate Blanchett was in them, close quote. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in welcoming back to the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, Kate Blanchett. hoping I was going to sit on the other side, because this is a little revealing. Oh, well, <laughs> we can trade a few. Anyway, we'll see how we go. I'm not wearing knickers. <laughs> we are so honored and thrilled that you're back here. Thank you for coming. And um, <laughs> I want to begin by uh, just going back to the very beginning, if we can. Can you share for anyone who may not know where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? I was born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, hello. <laughs> Australia is dark tonight. <laughs> um, uh, and my mother was a teacher and my father was um, in the US Navy. And he's, he had decided to be a Unitarian minister and um, he's, he went to the Antarctic to find God and the ship broke down and he found my mother. Hey. And so <laughs> Thank goodness. Here I am. Yes. Yeah. Um, so as a kid, acting, uh, you have said in the past, was just sort of a form of childcare, I guess, right? You were put into kind of uh, <laughs> Saturday classes. Put the closet under the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> <laughs> but even when you went off to university, this was not the path you were necessarily uh, going on. I, I read Museum Curator was at one point the, the goal. So how do you go from that outlook to then going off to drama school? Yeah, I, I studied um, fine arts and economics and I, I didn't ever think um, that, that acting was something that you could do beyond a hobby. I didn't have any examples in my, you know, my... My uh, um, grandfather was an artist who's a painter, but he was also a mechanic. It wasn't something that you earned a living from. And, you know, after my father passed away, it was just, uh, you know, you had to be financially secure. So This I was when you were very young. Yeah, he was, was very young. Yeah, he was 40 when he died, yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't ever think about it at all. And the student union was very active, so I did a lot of plays, directed a lot of plays, was in a lot of plays. And, um, and then someone who didn't particularly like me suggested I auditioned for drama school, which was in another state. Um, <laughs> so I took the advice and I left. Now, this is the National Institute of Dramatic Art. That's right, yeah. Which has produced quite a few tremendous actors right over the years. When you were there, there was somebody named Lindy Davis, right, as your third, third year? Uh, yes, yes. But you, you've said that her approach, I don't know if it's still something that you use today when you act, but that it really made a big impression on you at the time. Why was that? Uh, yes, I think there were, it was quite an eclectic drama school. We tried lots of different techniques and technique is useful for problem solving, but if things are flowing, you don't, you don't think about your technique. It's like you don't think about your homework, you do all your homework, but you, no one wants to see that. But she was very much about the text 
and freeing your body in space. So she, instead of holding a script when you were in a rehearsal room, because I've trained to work in the theatre because the, the Australian film industry punches above its weight internationally, but it's a very small industry and I was never that girl. I didn't think I'd ever work in the film industry, so I was just work, happy working in the theatre. And so you'd, you'd be in a rehearsal room and all of the text would be projected on the walls so that you were free to move. And, um, and she, she introduced this really interesting concept to me very early. I, I found it interesting that to make somebody else's words your own is a really, really complicated neuro-linguistic process. We think it's easy, but to actually own that language um, and choose those words and know why and what you want what are you trying to communicate beneath the words is a very complicated thing to do. So she felt that that had to be um, inside your body. And, you know, you know, if I had my way over, I, I would have worked with Martha Graham or been a Bhutto dancer or, you know, um, I feel, you know, most free in a way um, when I'm on stage. And that was what was so great about doing Tar yeah. was that it, it, it had that sort of performance component in it. So I felt like it was a homecoming. Totally. After graduating from, do you guys call it NIDA or something? NIDA. NIDA. Um, after graduating from there, you did something that I guess in a weird way might have been a secret weapon going out into the professional world. You were a reader for a casting director. I think it's a nice way of saying I was an unemployed actor. <laughs> 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 which is actually what I was. But uh, one of the, then one of the, the, the biggest casting directors had seen me, my shocking audition um, for, at, at, I, you know, they didn't, didn't know what to do with me. Um, I, didn't, I don't think I knew what to do with myself really. And so I chose some piece that just, you know, didn't, ugh, it was, you have to learn how to audition. It took me a long time to do that, to learn how to be seen in a way. Um, and so she saw something in me and would call me in to or three times a week and I would read opposite actors who were auditioning and it was just a really I mean even if I never took acting any further from an anthropological point of view it was fascinating to watch someone walk in the door and going just turn around and go out because you've already lost the job <laughs> no and it was no it was fascinating and then I realized also that you can't take you can't take it personally because I because I was so invisible to the people who were, were casting, um, I was just the reader, I would hear them speak about actors. And in a way, they were looking for someone taller, shorter, you know, of a different ethnicity or whatever, you know, whatever the, their sort of idea of what was right for the role and had very little to do with that actor's skill often. And so, so when you then are going and auditioning after that, you can kind of let go a little more maybe? Mm. Kind of, that was the, the, yeah. <laughs> the idea, right. But uh, yeah, those rooms can feel a bit airless. And um, I think if you can get through an audition, you can definitely do the job. Once you started working though, I know- This is uh, a deep dive. Oh yeah, no, we're, <laughs> we got no rush. I don't know about you. <laughs> do you want me to lie down? <laughs> <laughs> Once you started working on the stage in Sydney, it was, uh, it was pretty uh, well received, right? I mean. First person to win Best Actress and Best Newcomer at their equivalent of the Tonys. You were really impressing people. And I think it was, as you say, screen acting doesn't sound like it was on the agenda list, but it sort of um, indirectly came about because of the theater work, right? 
Yes, actually, uh, a um, casting director um, who was working a lot with Working Title at the at the time had seen me play Nina in a production of The Seagull, and and for some reason thought I should play Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> I like that in a casting director. Right. It's a very very. It, um, Eric Cantona, the famous football player, also played the uh, Duke of Anjou. Um, so it was a very kind of um, eclectic cast. But yes, so that it came out of. Um, uh, and, and Sheikha Kapoor, who, di- who directed it, said that he'd seen Gillian Armstrong had cast me as really fought for, for an Australian to play this Australian role because at that particular point it wasn't guaranteed. For Oscar and Lucy. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Fox Studios were starting um, in Australia and so they got me cheap and I got a three-picture three deal, is that right? My yeah. agent's here tonight. <laughs> mm. um, so, yeah, just Oscar and Lucinda, 97, Elizabeth, 98, and all of a sudden first Oscar nomination and people are saying, you know, oh, we better, who's Kate, who's Kate Blanchett? We better pay attention, right? I know, it was literally like, I, I, I didn't even know there was a festival in Venice. Uh, I, you know, I, I showed up and I didn't have a dress and, I, uh, and someone from Dolce & Gabbana, I think, let, let me address. I, I have no recollection about what happened that night. <laughs> Absolutely none. No, no, I was, I was deer in the headlights, yeah. And I mean, I imagine it must have been fairly jarring when you're essentially like right in the deep end like that. And then in a good way, but I mean, like right after that is it, it hasn't stopped. I mean, Talented Mr. Ripley was the next year for Eddie Mangella and others that we're going to obviously come to. But I guess I just wonder, how did you acclimate, first of all, to now, you know, you've always gone back and forth between screen acting and, and stage acting. Yeah. But in those you know, early years, people must have been saying, you know, strike while the iron's hot, right? You've got a big movie with Elizabeth, you're the star of it, and... Yeah, but the interesting thing is when, after I played um, Elizabeth I, there was a lot of scripts that came in with um, characters with the most lines, um, and they were all basically the same character, just in different costumes. And so I I realised very quickly that they were just wanting you to do what you'd done before, but they could just change the costume designer and the cinematographer. Um, And so that's why I was so excited to work with um, Mingella on this little nugget of a a role. That's where I met um, the wonderful, late, great um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He and I both had small roles, and so we spent three months together. And the excitement, though, you're saying, was that it was not a period costume. Yeah, but it it wasn't anything to do. It was worlds away from the character I'd played. Or, you know, I I took a very um, small role in a film, which I think about two and a half people saw, called Pushing Tin, where I met John Cusack and Billy Bob and Angelina. um, And... I, I played a, the wife of an um, air traffic controller. That was a scary film, working out how the air traffic controlling around the New York area actually works. <laughs> Didn't fly for a while right. after that. <laughs> well, you uh, thought, I guess, after Elizabeth actually was completed, but before it was released and recognised you weren't so confident that it was going to be well-received or that you were going to be well-received, I had read, that there was some scepticism? Well, it was, uh, it was at that time um, 
when that sort of bo there was no such thing as a Bollywood West hybrid. I mean, if any of you've seen RRR, you know, there's a lot of breakout films. Yeah. And when you've been to India, you know, the filmmaking, the way they string narratives together is so ent entirely different to how we are traditionally used to, to in the West. And it, it felt like it was such a strange uh, endeavor. At the beginning of the process, um, Shaker Kapoor handed me an, a, a book with uncut pages from. I don't know, 1750, um, basically saying the, the, the sayings of Queen Elizabeth I. And, and so I think he, he left me to sort of deal with the historical, any historical accuracy that the, that the film had. But it felt, I just felt like it was an act of hubris that Glenda Jackson and, and Judi Dench had, had played um, uh, Queen Elizabeth, Flora Robson, who was I? Um, a little girl from the colonies, so. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I think I was quite shocked at the, you know, that it was so well received in Venice and then here in the States. So there's that, there's Tom and Mr. Ripley, and then there's the first of, of a number of these hiatuses that you've taken, is hiatuses the plural, or I, I think so, <laughs> <laughs> over, the, over the years where you go back to theater, and I think you did that for a, a beat there after Mr. Ripley, I believe. Um, yeah, we did a play on, the, I did a play on the West End. But yeah, it's, it's, it's never been an either-or situation. I think I've been really fortunate to move between two mediums, because working in a proscenium arch gives you a very strong sense of a frame. And so I found really quite early in my career that I understood better, more deeply, what to do in a wide shot. That's why it's always good now that they've got monitors on set all the time, is you just go up and check the frame, and so you think, okay, if I move a bit more to the left, it will, I just innately know it will mean something different, and that's from just having that visceral understanding of the proscenium arch frame. So it's, it's been a really, you know, and then also to understand how to be really intimate with an audience in, um, you know, in a very big theatre because you used to the close-up, so... Really yeah. interesting, yeah. So you come back from that and there is this run of the shipping news, Charlotte Grey, Bandits, and then, of course, the Lord of the Rings trilogy for Peter Jackson. Um, how long were you in New Zealand for that part? And did you realize in the, in the making of it which I imagine, I mean, that this would be something sort of unlike anything we'd seen up to that point. Someone in, in um, at that point, I still had an, ag an agency in Australia, and someone in the agency in Australia said, you don't want to go to New Zealand and play an elf. <laughs> and I said, it's Peter Jackson. And I said, because at that, now we all go, of course, but at that, you know, he was brain dead and, and meet the peoples and all that stuff. And I, you know, I was such a huge fan of, of, of his and I said, I absolutely do. So I was there for 21 days, not enough. And the rest of them were, what was it, like nine months or something, right? No, I think they were there for two years. Two years, because they were back to back to Yeah, immigration finally had to get them out. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, I guess it was a good enough experience that you wanted to come back for The Hobbit years later, right? Oh, no, no, I stalked Peter about the, the <laughs> other one. I, mean, I did say to him that I wanted to play, there was a series um, where he was going to play uh, a dwarf and it was behind a, a table and I said, well, look, just you pan past the banquet table and there'll be you, can I sit there and be your dwarf wife? <laughs> And so, um, yeah, but um, I couldn't, it would have taken too long to put the facial hair on and I was doing something else, so I didn't get to do it. But yeah, just to be, it was an incredible family atmosphere and it, 
it was, everyone sort of takes it for granted how, what a risk it was. You know, they, the books were so beloved. And I don't think any of us, and you know, I was a small part of it, but I don't think any, not even Peter and Fran and, and Philippa could have predicted, Weta couldn't have predicted what an enormous thing it would do, part, you know, culturally, but for the, for the GDP of New Zealand. Yeah, right. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. Um, then there's Veronica Guerin, The Missing, and the two films that we'll show clips of next, but just to set it up, first of all, Martin Scorsese's The Aviator, you are playing Catherine Hepburn. And, yeah. Uh, who was still alive at the time you were cast. No, actually, well, yes, but then when I got on the plane to go and, uh, and film, I, I was just waiting in the lounge and I picked up a paper and she had passed away that day. And it was very considerate of her, right? <laughs> no, but it was terribly, it just felt like some sort of omen. And I mean, it's, it's always an incredible responsibility when you, um, or a daunting prospect. I mean, Anna Damas has it with playing Munro, you know, anyone who takes, you know, that on. Um, and when Michelle did it uh, as well, yeah. you know, I think that it's a huge responsibility playing someone who's so um, iconically known in the medium that you're presenting them. I think that's the challenge. Was it an immediate yes just because it's Scorsese or do you have to say to yourself, okay, I'm a blonde Australian being asked to play a, whatever you would describe her accent as, a uh, brunette American. Um, there are such things as wigs, so that that, that was <laughs> no, okay. All right, that, no, but I wasn't I mean, worried about that so much. I, I would think it's <laughs> it's an intimidating assignment, though. Well, no, but I mean, but of course, I, mean, I was doing the missing, so I was I was riding out with Marlborough men uh, every day. You know, my first child was learning to walk in the snow outside Santa Fe, and it was it was was one of the happiest times of my life actually working with Ron Howard and um, Tommy Lee Jones. It was a really I don't think a lot of people saw the film, but it was a really remarkable experience. And then I was told by my Agent Hilda that, that um, Scorsese wanted to call and I just had to sit down and I braced myself and um, I knew I had to, was going to say yes to what Whatever. Eddie was going to ask me. I thought he was going to ask me to sort of come to some charity event or <laughs> something. <laughs> and, and he asked me to play Hepburn and I went, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I, I did, I got, I got, the, I got the knee sweats. And actually, I did. I did have a. I did have a bit of a panic attack. Actually, um, we were living in London at the time, and we were out. I don't know. We were out with our little ones, and and all of a sudden, I'd, I'd never had a panic attack before. The, my vi my field of vision went like this, and I just said to my husband, "I've got to go home." And I think it was the. Really. I was so daunted by. But Marty's so great. He got there, and he said, "You don't have to look like her." He said, "You look great, blonde. You, you know, she she should have been a blonde." <laughs> and so, and what what he's doing is he's liberating you right there from having to do any sort of. Um, uh, looky-likey version. And the great thing he does um, is that he screens, doesn't just hand you links to, but he screens films. And I was thinking, why is he, you know, he's scre uh, screening all these screwball comedies. And I realised the very, very first entrance that my character had, he wanted the character's energy to blow um, Howard Hughes' socks off. So he was asking me to approach the character with the energy that those films had. So he was directing without directing, which is 
great directing, right? Absolutely, and uh, Oscar number one. So that was that was. Oh, it's great. all about that. <laughs> oh well, I mean, it's exciting. Uh, the other one that we'll look at in the next set of clips is Notes on a Scandal, which I imagine sometimes when you take on a role, it's because of the director, like Scorsese. Sometimes maybe uh, is it the people you'll be acting opposite. In this case, Judy. Dench. And Bill Nye. And Bill Nye, yeah. who's going to be a... If you haven't seen Living, <gasps> yes. he's incredible, really incredible. In this case, just to remind folks, you are playing this teacher who has an inappropriate relationship with a student and then has this kind of uh, older teacher who, who has a bit of an obsession with, with you, your character, uh, played by Judy Dench. Is there anything that you, when you're with somebody like that who's been around forever and, and doing great work, um, do you just observe or do you ask questions? What's your, uh, how do you, how do you uh, learn from the great people you've worked oh, with? She's, she's fantastic. She's so wicked. I mean, I remember she wrote, uh, she was telling me she, uh, David Hare had, had written a wonderful, wonderful play. And of course, because it was wonderful, wonderful, at that particular point, the critics, London critics decided they didn't like him. So they gave him a bad review. And she did a cross-stitch cushion for him that said, fuck em, fuck em, fuck em. <laughs> so that's Judy. Yeah. And we were doing, we were about to do a close up and she was standing here doing this with both her hands. And I thought, she lost it, what's she doing? <laughs> and I said, Judy, what are you doing? She said, oh, darling. She said, takes all the veins away from your hands. <laughs> and so I'm about to put my hands to my face and I don't want them to look the age I am. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Valuable so lessons. She's, she's yes. really, really great. But, but also, we, we had our characters, um, because her character does get very obsessed with my character, as my character gets very obsessed with one of her students. So it's a very um, unhealthy human soup of a film. Um, written brilliantly by Patrick Marber, which is how I got into the film in the first place. And um, we, we, have a, we have a sort of a violent episode where, where Judy was actually looking like a ninja turtle. She had, a, <laughs> she had to have this back brace on because I had to slam Judy Dench into a dresser full of crockery. And I said to Richard Eyre, the director, I said, I really, I, I can do a lot of things, but I can't slam Judy Dench into a dresser. <laughs> and she said, she said, don't worry, darling, just go for it. <laughs> she was fabulous. She was fabulous. So after the year of No, It's Not a Scandal, that's 2006, you have just an insane 2007. There's the sequel to Elizabeth the Golden Age, or excuse me, the Elizabeth the Golden Age sequel to Elizabeth, which let's start there because I believe that Shekhar and Jeffrey Rush, from what I've read, were gung-ho to do it. You were a little less sold at the outset. Why was that? To go back to of character, I guess, for the first time on screen. Yeah, I just, I, I felt I wanted to make sure that we were doing something different. We weren't try, just trying to replicate the other one, which, he, yeah. Sorry, no, yeah. And he's, he wants to do a third, right? Shaker. Shaker. Yeah. yeah. No, he, oh, yeah, yeah, the, he told me about this really interesting, well, who knows if they're facts or not, <laughs> that, that Queen Elizabeth was, before she died, was standing in front of a window for 16 hours and no one knew what she was looking at, and then she eventually lay down on bed, and he's interested in those 16 hours. Wow. Mm. It's a very long film, very still. <laughs> very, very still. Right. Dollar, oh, yes, fascinating. <laughs> a lot of voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> 
so box office gold. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you go from that and I think if I remember what you had said once before that ends on a Friday and on Monday you're playing Bob Dylan so and I'm not there for Todd Haynes right yeah no no that it was a really strange experience I was playing um, Elizabeth the first and and every lunchtime I um, I got all of the outtakes from the Penny Baker documentary um, of of Dylan giving press conferences all around um, Europe on his electric tour and I would watch them in my corset and my wig like inches <laughs> from the television and I I had to lose um, an incredible amount of weight to play uh, Dylan, so I was getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, in the, if you watch the film, you might actually see it. And we finished on the Friday, and then I had to pack up the kids and go to Montreal and uh, land on Sunday evening and start shooting on Monday. That was, yeah. And there were I was younger. A bunch of people. <laughs> if people need a reminder about, I'm not there. It's just different versions, interpretations of Dylan throughout his life. In your case, I think it's right when he's going electric, basically that controversial um, time around then. And it's kind of eerie how much you're made to look like him in there, right? I mean... Yeah, well, I, I play him in that really iconic time. I think that a lot of people think about Dylan. But there's various different people, Richard Gere, um, the wonderful Heath Ledger, um, and, um, you know, we all, we all play different versions of, of him, Christian Bale. Um, and so it's... Yeah, I think, I, in a way, I think it, I was never more liberated because I got to... I think if a man had played that role, it would have been much more difficult, whereas I could just absolutely launch myself into it because I was never going to look like him. Although, yeah, no, it's, it came out pretty... It's so much fun. It was so wow. much fun. So that, those two were 2007, and then 2008, David Fincher, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, as Daisy, this woman in love with a backwards-aging man... David Fincher is known for doing a gazillion takes. In this case, I imagine you're surrounded by, or people with dots on their face or whatever, with all the visual effects that were required to do this. How do you, I've heard people that say they um, absolutely hate the idea of like, what do you want? What, I'm not clear what you want me to do differently with take 32 versus 31, or you know, they, it, you can drive you nuts. Other people say they love it. It's figuring it out. What was your, where did you land on that question? Well, I, I don't have a particular process. I think that comes to into being depending on who you're working with and what you're working on. And I did, I was in Whole Foods um, and I bumped into an actor who had worked with David Fincher and he saw me and he said, are you about to work with David? And I said, yeah. And he, he just burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> I went, oh, you poor thing. And thinking, no, but I, I loved it. I really loved it. And I love working with Brad and, um, and the, the character and the um, Eric Roth's screenplay was so beautiful. It was really beautiful, but it was, it was quite an interesting time because we were one of the first films to go back into um, after Hurricane Katrina. So it was very challenging. You know, the first Mardi Gras was back on. So it was, it was, a, you know, it was a real privilege to be in New Orleans at that time. And you mentioned working with Brad Pitt. I had neglected to note two years earlier you guys had done... Um, Babel together. It was yes. a smaller part, yeah. but it was the whole catalyst for mm. how one thing can ricochet and have effects all over the world. Um, 
just anything you might want to say about that one? That was a- yeah. I mean, once again, I mean that's that's um, an, another experience of, of I wanted to work with Inritu, and um, I knew Brad was potentially doing it. So we, the three of us, talked about it, and it, it's a really small role, but it's a, it sets up the rest of the drama, um, which sort of cascades from this particular event. And so it wasn't the size of the role that drew me. It was it was just being part of that the vision of of that film. Totally. So this is where I think the most marked um, hiatus came after Benjamin Button, right? There's like five years when you're not on the big screen with the exception of The Hobbit, eight days or whatever you said it was. Um, you were you were not just uh, sleeping in. You were very busy during those years. Can you talk about what you and your husband were up to and how that may have enabled you to do the thing that brought you back, which was, I believe, Blue Jasmine. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we had our third child, so that's a big one. Um, and then we were asked to, to go back and run the um, Sydney Theatre Company, which is the largest of the state theatre companies. And it was where I got my first job. I was I'm, My very first job at a drama school was understudying another actress for a production of Carol Churchill's Top Girls. And so to go back and run the company with my husband, um, you know, who's actually offered the job and he said, why don't we do it together, was um, some of the most... Uh, it was a life-changing decision. So we were feeling pulled back to Australia, which is a very magnetic country anyway. Um, And one of the first things we programmed, um, the very first year, we programmed um, a play which Steven Soderbergh directed based on the Casey Anthony story, um, which he called Top Mum. And then Liv Ullman came to direct a production of Streetcar. With you as as Blanche. Yeah. And there is some connective tissue maybe between... Blanche and Jasmine, who has a breakdown of her own in Blue, ja- Blue Jasmine, which was the one that you came back for. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I, I had thought when I received the script that Woody Allen, who directed the film, must have seen it, but he never goes to see anything. <laughs> um, and so, no, he hadn't, um, it, uh, apparently. And he wouldn't talk about Streetcar at all, even though the parallels to me were very... Um, obvious, but what was so great because we were going to take the play to Broadway, but you know you can't say because it was such a success. Um, we had such a wonderful tour, but you know my hair was falling out. I was exhausted. I had three children. We had a you know we had a day job and a, a big responsibility in Australia, so we couldn't do it. So to be able to revisit the, an echo of that role that was sort of so viscerally inside me was um, was really exciting. Does it bother you at all that when you do great work on the stage, it's, yeah, for a relatively small number of people, they are lucky enough to see it, but then it's sort of gone right here, but you do it on screen, it's there forever. Is there something that, is that, does that phase you at all that, you know, at least to preserve, I know it's not the same thing as, as uh, Shrikar, but I don't know, it must be. I don't, I don't think a lot about legacy. I think, you know, those of you who have seen or might see Tar, the character's very obsessed with legacy. And I think it's a, it's a way of sidestepping the experience of living your life. Um, and so I don't think about those things. I, I really, you know, I, I love... Um, part of what 
you know, I, I love about the theatre, what I centrally love about the theatre is the very direct relationship that you have with an audience and the way that that audience absolutely impacts on the way the evening will unfold. Of course, the architecture's the same, but the mood, the atmosphere, the texture of a moment changes because of all those, all of you people in the seats. It, you know, it, it's not a passive experience. And so it's, it is my first love, you know, for sure. Can I ask you to just talk about, I mean, the breakdown of this character had to be really, I think, calibrated. It's a tricky, I would imagine, I'm not an actor, I would imagine from looking at it, not an easy thing to do. Um, how did you approach that in particular? Yeah, well, it's, um, it, was a, it was a while ago. Um, I, but she's somebody who's, who's just holding on in a way um, that living in a deluded state becomes the safest place to be because the present and the past are so absolutely painful. And you realise that it's... When you've had something, when you lose it, you've experienced this massive void um, and she hasn't got enough self-reserve to fill that void. Um, and this was, I think, not long after the whole Madoff situation came to light and... Yes, Right. There were yes. some people that thought maybe there's a little bit of Ruth... Madoff in this character? I, don't I think, yeah, clearly. I mean, that, it, that's the fascinating thing about a story is the time in which it's uh, released and the time in which you're making it. When we found that when we're doing a television series called Mrs. America yes. is that, you know, while we were doing that, when, when we were pitching it to the studio, there was an episode that was about um, uh, 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 one of the characters was going to have a termination and the, the studio was saying, that's past, that moment's past, it's not really relevant to women now. And then the fetal heartbeat ruling came in and you realise that all of these things were starting to be eroded. So it really does, even though it's set back in time, it absolutely influences the texture of how you play something. So yes, that story did loom large for us, yeah. Oscar number two. I know it doesn't matter to you. I know. I no, not that it doesn't matter <laughs> at all, but you don't, you know, all, all you can see are the, are the pit holes into which you can fall as an actor, you know, and then you try and find an audience. That's the next hurdle. Sure. Let's talk about a project that I think you were part of a group of people who were trying to realize for years and years, and for some reason, um, I guess it was not clicking for until 2015 when we got to see you in the adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's 1952 novel, The Price of Salt, which was called Carol. Mm -hmm. And um, many people regard that film as, as one of their favorites of, of your work. And just, it's a tremendous performance for people who need a reminder, this woman who has a forbidden love affair with a younger woman, in that case played by Rooney Mara. Why was it so hard to come, you know, to bring it to the screen? And why was it important to you to stick with it through that struggle? Yeah, well, those of us who were producing it, it was, it was on again, off again, on again, off again. And I, I think it's in, in the landscape we are now, when different types of relationships between different types of people uh, have entered the mainstream. It, it wasn't like that back in 2015. I mean, that is recent history. And I don't think, um, I just couldn't see why it was so difficult. It had Todd 
um, Haynes directing it. It was Rooney, it was me, and we were producing it with Liz Carlson and Stephen Woolley, and we thought, well, this is going to happen. Um, and, of course, the budget got lower and lower and lower and lower. But, but um, you know, and so we just thought, let's just, we'll just make it and we'll make it work. Um, but even so, I don't think any of us could have realised the, the reception that it, would, that it would have or how lasting the impact would have been. Obviously, in the same way that the novel did, it was a, you know, a positive ending to a, to a same-sex relationship. Although I was doing an interview the other day about Tar, and the interviewer, male, said, um, you seem to be forging a line in predatory lesbians. <laughs> I said, excuse me? <laughs> and he said, Lydia Tarr. He said, Carol. And I went, have you seen the film? Have you read the book? <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Yeah, that's a it's, tough a, You know, it's, it's, it's such a reductive way to look at that story and that beautiful, beautiful film. The way it ends is kind of haunting, and I wonder, absolutely, yeah. Um, would you mind reminding folks just that final closing bit about the film and what you interpret it to, to mean? I think people really wonder about these characters. They felt very sort of invested in them. It, well, it's a, it's a lesson in ambiguity. I mean, Phyllis Nage, who wrote the screenplay, really beautiful screenplay, it, had this, it has this open, um, which I don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen the film, who might see it, um, where Rooney's character, Therese, returns to try and find Carol, but they just see one another across the crowded room. And it has to be, we, we knew it had to be incredibly full of possibility. And I think there had been a scene after that which was more descriptive about what would happen next. But I think it, it, it meant that it was it 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 meant that it, the road wasn't going to be easy, but it was open. There was a you know, but it it, it was a you know a, a, an acting lesson in ambiguity. Great. Um, and second time with Todd Haynes, and I guess I should ask you because, I mean, here's a guy who has from. The ones you've made with him, Far From Heaven, we could go on and on about. There, he, he seems to, I don't want to say draw out of actresses because they're the ones that are equal partners, at least equal partners in it, but like, what is it about the way he works with actresses where so often they do such great work for him? He's, he comes with these incredible uh, mood boards and, and sort of a, almost like a soundtrack for your character, so you get into the mood of how he he might shoot you, and so he was, he was, he's very generous with including you in, in into that world. So he was interested in the photography of Soul Lider, and um, and, and my my brain's gone, but there's a wonderful female photographer who was a, actually a babysitter, um, and I think there was a Vivian Meyer, I think is her name, yeah, and she um, would photograph. There were sort of strange self-portraits where she'd photograph herself in shop windows, and you'd catch part of her in a in a in a mirror or something. But they um, and so you were really invited into the texture and how you were going to be looked at, which is useful because then you can absorb that and forget about it and just play play the scenes. But he's a he's a really wonderful um, 
He, and he's also, in a way, it still feels as, as kind of fluid as a student film. You know, I'd, I'd seen years ago, I'd seen his student film when he was at um, NYU called Superstar, yeah. which is the Karen Carpenter story done with Barbie dolls. Underground, Unbelievable. right? Unbelievable. Watching this Barbie doll with her mother yelling at her, vomiting into the toilet. It was heartbreaking. It was really... Only he could have done that. It was really With, incredible. speaking of student film, like, I think going back to wherever it was, NYU, I forget where, but he and Christine Vachon since yeah. then through now. Yeah, uh, he has long relationships. Yeah. Um, also, the year of Carol was Truth, you and Robert Redford. He's Dan Rather, you're his producer. Mm -hmm. There was Cinderella, there was Knight of Cups, and then there was a movie that, or a project, I don't know how you describe this, that not many of us got to see unless you are, I guess, at certain museums or um, very select places called Manifesto, which is a, a multi-screen film installation written, produced, and directed by Julian Roosevelt, shot in 12 days, in which you play 13 different roles. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's going to be one of the clips we see in a moment. Oh, yeah. That, I actually went to Sundance in a, in a linear form. Um, but we did it as a multi-channel work. It showed at the Armory in New York. And I, th I think it was here at LACMA. Um, as well, but it was a so there were 13 different screens, and each character was um, was saying as a monologue um, an artist manifesto, and of course artist manifestos, you know whether it's the um, you know the futurists or the dadaists or the um, uh, you know the surrealists or whoever, they they assert their difference. That, you know, in such a passionate way and how they want to destroy the artistic movement that has come before them. But the fascinating thing is when you heard all of these done in concert and then they hit this pitch tone, the, the, each of the characters would turn and start speaking, on a, start speaking on a pitch tone and they'd all hit this pitch tone. All of these assertions of individuality all sounded exactly the same which was a really fascinating thing to, to be in the middle of. Over the years, immediately after that, there's the all-female Ocean's 8. <laughs> there's um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And then for the first time, which you brought up earlier, and I'm glad because we definitely need to talk about it, Phyllis Schlafly, this housewife who becomes the face of anti Feminism, right, basically. And we would be so happy right now of what's going on in yeah. Florida. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Opponent of the Equal Rights Act. This is Davi Waller's FX on Hulu limited series, Mrs. America. If you haven't seen it yet, it's you got to see it. Kate gave six months of her life, right, to doing this. And it's, it's pretty amazing. And I guess I just wonder, before we even talk about that character and that story, which, again, is one of these where eerily, timely, just the way it worked out, but to go to television for the first time since you had become a movie star, uh, was that because film had gotten less appealing, TV had gotten more appealing, both, neither, what was, because TV definitely, I mean, when you first emerged on the scene, it would have been a step in the wrong direction to be going to do TV. Now it's, the, now it's what the cool kids do. So I guess I just wonder what led you to finally do that. Yeah, I mean, I have such eclectic taste. I mean, I, I always have. I have as an audience member and I, um, you know, I, I, I always am interested in talking to, to different audiences. And it felt that there was so much story um, 
which is not always a reason to tell it all. Like just because you're trying to adapt a very fat novel doesn't mean you may need to make a very fat movie or a very fat television series. Sometimes it's page 37 that is the impetus and, that, and therefore that's... But, but this felt like there were, there were a lot of perspectives that needed to be seen. So it felt that the form for that to be um, seen in should be television. And like, um, our production company, Dirty Films, that we, we did a, a show called Stateless and it was about a particular case of a, a German-Australian woman who ended up on onshore detention um, because she'd lost her passport. And so we wanted to talk about um, offshore detention, but reverse engineer it. And we thought if we make it as a movie, a very small amount of people will see it. Whereas if we make it for ABC television and then stream it through Net Netflix, a lot more people will see that story. So um, it, it just, you work out maybe the best way and the best way to communicate with your audience, best way to make it as well. When you are playing somebody whose views are I believe it's correct to say quite different than your own. Is that harder than playing somebody in the opposite situation or is that fun? Like how did you, what did you feel about playing Phyllis, portraying Phyllis Schlafly? Yes, it, uh, look, it, I, I wanted, uh, I, I find it really tragic that it's not just in this country, but all over the world, that women are being divided from each other along political lines that are often drawn generationally by men. And I find that I wanted to find a way to to somehow, not that one television series can do it, I'm in no way saying that it can, but in a very, you know, in our small way to try and reach across that divide to find the points of connection. Um, and so the main thing for me was that, and I suppose the dangerous thing is to try and allow those characters to, all of them to be seen warts and all, to find the points of, because, you know, there's, there's certain things that, you know, human rights abuses are bad. We know that. But why do they keep happening? That's what we need to lean into. And so we need to understand the perpetrators of those abuses. Why do they do what they do? What were their childhoods like? Why, how can we better understand them so we can prevent them in the future? Not that I also don't see that the television, film, works of literature are educative tools. I think that's what a broad education is for. Um, they're works of inspiration and um, a point where people will start to ask interesting questions. But I, yeah, I was, it's tricky because you read some of her writing and you think, did you just say that? Because that actually doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. I want to, I want to make sure that we talk about the films that you did two years ago, because this was quite a contrast. Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, a film noir in which you're basically a femme fatale, which I guess in a sense, yeah, I mean, it's great. And also, I guess you had years earlier done maybe sort of a version of that with The Good German with for Soderbergh, just a period sort of, I don't know oh, if you, yeah. but, um, but just that part, first of all, because it felt like a lot of people remarked upon, it's like you could have fit in in that era when those were actually popularly being made film noir films noir film noirs um and i guess just that challenge in the same year in which you then play 
this is my words, not yours, but it seemed to me a variation of Mika Brzezinski in <laughs> Don't Look Up, uh, Adam McKay's very dark comedy about, you know, basically a, a lot of stuff, including our lack of action with climate change, with mm. uh, global warming and all that. So anyway, um, just to, to have those two in one year, very, very different kinds of movies, very different kinds of parts. Yeah, well, uh, Nightmare Alley was done... I, my part was done right before the pandemic started, um, and then the, the movie kept being stopped, obviously, so they finally got to finish it, so it probably would have come out earlier. But um, Don't Look Up was done right in the middle of the pandemic, uh, which was really strange. I have a sm small but um, delicious little role in it. And um, so that was one where, you know, if you have a wig, bring your wig. If you've got some costumes, bring your costumes. Because nothing could be... Nothing, there was no movement of any goods or services at that particular point. And everyone was masked up. I mean, we were John Travolta in The Boy in the Bubble. And it was so... It really wasn't... It wasn't conducive to, you know... No one left the hotel room. It was a really particular experience. But that's not alone. Everyone was experiencing that. But it was... Um, it was, it was deep in the pandemic. Prior to Tar, it had been 16 years since we'd last seen a uh, film from Todd Field, who had made the wonderful uh, In the Bedroom, yes. and then Little Children. Um, I wonder if you can talk about just the impression those films made on you earlier in the 21st century, and then how you became aware of the fact that he wanted to come back to feature films with this project tar, which I believe he said to me, I remember that I don't think this was going anywhere unless you were going to be part of it. So that's <laughs> quite a compliment slash pressure on, on you and all of, uh, you know, a lot of people were itching to see another Todd Field film. So tell us about that. Well, we, we, we met probably about 10, 12 years ago now. Um, he was working with Joan Didion um, on, on a project. And for one reason or another, that didn't happen. But the conversation that we had with one another was so um, engaged. And obviously, I'd seen his films. And they're so deeply human that he just sort of, you could tell he was placing all of the actors and everyone just into a state of cohesive being. He creates an atmosphere and a world that is, you utterly fall into, and then he pulls the rug out from under you. But you never feel tricked by him, you just feel incredibly disconcerted by his f filmmaking. Um, and so obviously I wanted to work with him. Um, and he's so, uh, such an experimenter as a, as a, as a filmmaker, you know, in that in that intervening time, he's been continually experimenting with form and the way he uses cameras and the types of stories that he wants to tell. So it felt when he came back with Tar that he was just coming all guns blazing. And for me, I had never... It was an utterly once-in-a-lifetime experience. And I was, I was saying to him the other day, it is very bittersweet in a way because it's, it's, um, it's been such an incredible experience making the film and then watching the impact that it's had on audiences who've seen it many times, not once, but twice or three times. I was working with Alfonso Cuaron in, in London um, uh, last year and he'd, he'd seen Tar. And he said, he said, I've seen it three times. He said, I saw it once and I was, 
I, I just was blown away. He said, the second time, I was envious. And the third time, I went, how the fuck did he do that? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true. It's very haunting. But, I, like, yeah. A lot of people go back to it and pick up, you know, such subtle things that are in there, like certain sounds even that have been inserted that you make more, that mean something more when you have the context of having seen it once before, just all kinds of stuff. But I wonder for you, how did you, what did you see as your job with this character? What was, what are you um, trying to communicate in playing this woman who, she goes through the spectrum of experiences, emotions. Um, I, I can't imagine, you're in every scene. I can't imagine you've ever bitten off as much of a, an assignment as this would have been for you. Well, sometimes a role, very rarely, hits you at a time when you're open to the sort of the subterranean aspects of what the film is dealing with. I mean, there was so much to do. Um, just to get to first base, to be able to play the character so that the audience would believe that, you know, she had the unassailable right to be there, that she was a master of her craft. And that involved the prosaic things like, um, you know, piano playing and German and conducting and, you know, stick technique and, um, you know, having a musical knowledge and... Um, you learn German for the part. Yeah, it just didn't seem authentic that she would be working at the head of a German orchestra, the intendant, um, the principal conductor, uh, for seven years and then rehearse in English. It just didn't feel right, so... And learn to actually properly conduct. I mean, there was a, yeah. there were musicians who said, I, I guess who worked on this, who said they, you would have, they would have worked for you in a real world situation. <laughs> like, that's pretty unbelievable. <laughs> but I think maybe where, what I knew, I was absolutely terrified because we had to do all the music stuff up front. And um, I had a pair of jeans, a friend of mine who was um, helping me over Zoom um, with, with, with stick to, Tick, um, with my stick technique, not my dick technique. Um, <laughs> someone else will help me with that, sorry. <laughs> oh no, well. Uh, anywho. <laughs> and she just said, just remember to plant yourself on the podium. Do not apologize for being there. And she said, well, work from your core. And I thought, that's exactly what I do on the stage. So I wore a pair of um, jeans, which sucked my, I call my tar jeans. Um, and, I, and I just went up there and in my bad German, I, I thanked them for their, for their patience. And I said, we have to rehearse together and we'll find our way together and thank you very much. And then gave the downbeat and we started. Wow. I wonder, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that you and your husband had run this theater company in Sydney, a major place. Did that in any way inform some of the stuff that Lydia Tarr is dealing with as the person who's running a big artistic organization herself. Forget about the Me Too side of things that comes in, but just the power dynamics and the challenges that somebody at the top faces where you gotta keep a lot of people happy, the donors, collaborators, all of that. I mean, I just wonder if that was relevant experience. Yeah, I mean, when you have 250 people 
between all the people who work in workshop and administration and, um, you know, and building maintenance and then you have the creative, um, the, you know, the cast and crews who come, who come through and then you have, you know, responsibilities to your sponsors and to your board and we were CEOs and artistic directors of the company, so responsible for the physical health of the company. I realised how lonely that can be, frankly, that the buck does stop with you and that there will be people who come into your office who you cannot say yes to and that ones that you want to say yes to but you can't because either you, you know they're not quite ready or you just don't have the money to realise their vision or you might be able to program it next year or it doesn't. you've already programmed something else and so you're always, always disappointing people. And the hard thing is in that situation is to... Because often people will get incredibly angry about that stuff. And so how do, you, how do you it's a, manage those expectations and how do you manage it respectfully? And the interesting thing, which I innately know being in the rehearsal room, is that sometimes rehearsal rooms can be, in order to move through something together, um, they can be um, robust places and so how do you have that sort of robust and often brutal conversation where you need to kill your darlings um, but do it respectfully so they're, they're things that I, I sort of very deeply understood the way this movie opens is very unusual we have the it's a Todd Field film credits and then this amazing situation not unlike the credits one credits rolling backwards because yes, of course it's rolling. all about time yes yeah. and and then we have you in a situation like this being as Lydia Tarr being interviewed to communicate overtly just what a what an accomplished and well-known person this is and EGOT and they're comparing her the inside reference to Hilder who is actually the composer yes, of the film yes, and yes. all of the stuff there but a lot of subtext as well, and I and this is a long conversation there where a lot is communicated with you and Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker playing himself. Uh, just can you shed any light on? I feel like that what must have been a very complex assignment beyond the fact that it's just a lot of dialogue, right? Yeah, there's a, a, a lot of talk that, in a way, it's, it's incredibly rhythmic and you realise that you don't, very quickly, you don't need to understand it. You're, there's something disconcerting about it and I think as the film goes on, you realise that she is one of the world's great classical music performers but, in a way, her greatest performance is herself. And so it was important for me, I think, you know, in a way, in these situations, we try and be as natural as possible. <laughs> but, you know, there's still, there still is an element of performance because if you and I were, were talking, just the two of us, I wouldn't continue to be doing that, knowing that those people over there are going to get photographs of me going... <laughs> You know, you know, there is an element of self-consciousness to it. And I think certainly there is for um, maestros because their behaviour um, is often absolutely cements their reputation and an, audi um, an orchestra's expectation about how they might deal with that particular conductor. So it, it was a fascinating... Um, we didn't do that scene to sort of halfway through, which I was gra okay. very grateful for. So we kept refining what it was that she was going to, 
to say, but it sets up a lot of the, the tropes. And also you realise, because someone else's assistant is mouthing her backstory, you, you soon realise that um, she's been running from herself and running from her past, and not in the ways that you think she has. It's a sort of a, an existential running, um, and that, you know, sort of chasing her shadow in a shadow in a way and manufacturing her identity in order to give herself the space and the access to be able to play the great music which she is, uh, um, you know, a master of. There have been a few real-world conductors, very famous conductors, who have in the last few years been accused of very bad behavior. As they have of CEOs of major banking corporations. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It's not, you know, this is the thing, is it's, it, it could have been set in an architecture firm or, you know, somewhere on Wall Street or, you know, in Google or wherever, but perhaps that would have been a little more dry and less interesting. But most of them, though, have been men. The idea of having the, uh, uh, basically subverting that, having a um, woman in a way, in a, in a world that outside of tar is still extremely male dominated. I still don't, I don't think there is a, to this day, a female conductor running one of the, however you classify that top echelon of, of orchestras, right? They're no, I mean, it is a fairy tale still. Some, the wonderful Simone Young, my fellow country woman, is, um, she was the intendant of the Hamburg Opera and, and uh, the State Opera and the, and the orchestra there. But no, say, for example, the Berlin Philharmonic, there's never been a woman. So it's a fairy tale of sorts, absolutely. But this idea then of the woman being the one who's accused of essentially being a quote-unquote, you know, or what, what we come to see as like the bad man, mm -hmm. is there something that you and or Todd would like that to provoke uh, in terms of the audience to think about? Does is it, is it make it easier maybe for men to reflect on things when it's not I, I guess I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, is there a strategy to the idea of, of uh, making people think about things differently by... Well, the film was about so yeah. many things. Right. I mean, I, you know, I thought a lot about her turning 50, her summiting her career, and, and as an artist, realising that once you reach peak, the only way, the, creatively, is you can't stay up there forever. If you're going to keep evolving as an artist, you have to have failure. And so, you know, she self-immolates in a profound way, in a way, starts again, but, you know, with a different access point to the music, um, you know, itself. But, but yes, I think, you know, if, if that had been a, um, a, a man atop the podium, I think that that's something we would have understood that we see day in, day out, and we would have had a particular relationship, perhaps a safer relationship to... Um, the examination of power that, that is one element of the film, for sure, yeah. But it wasn't... I, the, the fascinating thing about the responses that the film has had um, that, you know, exceeded our wildest dreams was that people have been talking about it. Um, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to view the film. And I think that, as you say, when you go back in and see it the second or third time, you, you pick up other different elements. 
Totally. I'm not going to, I could go on about it forever. Like there, because as you say, there are so many things that it raises, but let's instead bring out a six time Oscar nominee three times this year for producing, directing and writing Tar. Tar is now one of only four films that have been recognized as the best film of the year by the New York, LA, London, uh, those film critics groups and the National Society of Film Critics. The other three ever, Schindler's List, LA Confidential, and The Social Network. Please welcome Todd Field. Wow. You know, I have some prepared remarks tonight. Um, this is a, it's kind of an incredible moment um, to be able to, to be in conversation with Kate, as it's always uh, incredible to be in conversation with her. Um, you know, we met about, I don't know, roughly 12 years ago. Um, and when you sit with Kate and, and, and you're in dialogue with her, it changes you completely forever. Um, she truly is um, one of the great minds and hearts that you'll ever come across. Um, and, uh, and yes, there is a performative you know, element to this, as you guys are pointing out, the sort of Gopnik interview. But, but the truth is, is that who you're seeing up here and, and, and who you're hearing up here, that, that that's Kate. Um, and um, while Kate is... Uh, Blanchett as many things um, with accomplishments that would make Lydia Tarr pale by comparison. As a practical matter, let's just uh, explore four of those things. Um, Kate is an activist, a humanitarian, a working mother, and the best dressed woman in the world. As an activist, uh, she joined former Vice President Al Gore's Climate Project and became the ambassador for the Australian Conservation Foundation, putting her superhuman efforts behind passing a carbon tax, something she received a whole lot of shit for, particularly from Australia's hard right. Um, uh, did this dissuade her? No fucking way. Um, uh, she doubled down and she continued the fight, continuing her work with Solar Aid to create sustainable market for photovoltaics to bring clean renewables to places in Africa with no access to power other than fossil fuels. An urgent and vital benefit to communities that created new possibilities in other sectors, including healthcare and education, to lift up and exalt those who heretofore had no hope for a real future for either they or their families. And as a humanitarian, her work with the United Nations had brought a sense of awareness and action for the desperate need of aid for global refugees fleeing countries for acts of genocide. Kate's taken personal missions to bring attention to the issues faced by the displaced and disparaged people fleeing Syria. We're suffering so far now with these earthquakes that are going on, and her, her efforts in this aim were recognized at the World Economic Forum, where she addressed the United Nations Security Council about the atrocities committed against the Rohingya people, to this day one of the most persecuted minorities in the world. 
Now, as, as an artist, uh, you, you've heard this discussion tonight, you know, and, and where does one begin? begin? You, you, you guys have spent a good deal of time talking about Kate's uh, real love, which is um, the stage, you know, and it might, it, at the time, uh, at the very height of her success as a film actor, uh, you know, for reasons that Kate has explained, uh, she sort of stepped away to run the Sydney Theatre Company uh, with, with Andrew Epton. Um, they traded off acting and directing duties to build a cultural institution that filled a vacuum in championing First Nations and all manner of new work, commingling with classics of the canon like Chekhov and, and as, as Kate has talked about, Williams. Now, that production of A Streetcar Named Desired that was directed by Liv Ullman traveled from Sydney to BAM and the Kennedy Center. It was a critical and commercial smash. Uh, Kate received universal acclaim for her performance as Blanche Dubois. The New York Times critic Ben Brantley said, Miss Ullman and Miss Blanchette have performed the play as if, you had never, as if it had never been staged before, with the result that, as a friend of mine put it, you feel like you're hearing words you thought you knew pronounced correctly for the very first time. John Lahr of The New Yorker wrote, with her alert mind, her informed heart, and her life patrician silhouette, Blanchette gets it right from the very first beat. I don't expect to see a better performance of this role in my lifetime. And Meryl Streep, upon leaving the theater, said, that performance was as naked, as raw, and extraordinary, and astonishing, and surprising, and scary as anything I've ever seen. I thought I'd seen that play. I thought I knew all the lines by heart, because I've seen it so many times, but I'd never seen the play until I saw that performance. Now, at this point, Kate had been away from the screen for a very long time indeed, but Hollywood hadn't forgotten. They just kept calling. Finally, she answered. Uh, the filmmakers, many of whom have been uh, discussed tonight, who've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to collaborate with her, read like a who's who of the greatest filmmakers of our time. Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, Gillian Armstrong, Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, Peter Jackson, Terrence Malick, Anthony Minghella, Todd Haynes, Jim Jarmusch, Bruce Beresford, Shekhar Kapoor, David Fincher, Steven Soderbergh, Adam McKay, Alfonso Cuaron, Alejandro Inarritu, Guillermo del Toro. I, I'm going to stop there. It's um, um, the name, but a lucky few. Yes, how lucky they all were. And how lucky I am. And how lucky the world is to live in a time where Kate Blanchett graces our stages and screens and walks the earth for our common good. John Lahr of The New Yorker got it right. Her informed heart. That is Kate Blanchett. And yes, she is one of the greatest actors who's ever lived. What a privilege and joy it is to introduce to you my friend and colleague and the recipient of the Outstanding Performer of the Year Award, the one and only Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Todd.
thank you. I, 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 won't, I won't bang on. Um, you've heard enough and seen enough. But thank you so much, Todd. And, um, and it really is lovely to be back in Santa Barbara, you know, this, which is a place that, yeah, that is, um, it's a community so full of spirit and, and such a, a warm, loving, um, film-loving community. So thank you to the Santa Barbara Film Festival for the third time. Clearly a lot of people have said no. <laughs> yeah. Here you go, you got me again. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, for outstanding performance of the year, um, it's an honour in any year, but, but this year in particular, when there have been so many outstanding, idiosyncratic performances, uh, memorable performances um, by, by women of wildly different shapes and sizes and artistic ambition, it's an honour indeed. So thank you so much. Um, and thank you, Roger, and um, thank you, Scott, for the conversation. Thank you very much. And uh, for the reminder that I have been in this industry <laughs> for quite some time, um, which, which really is a genuine surprise uh, to, to me that I've been able to pursue what I love. I mean, in a, in a way, acting is a sort of a physical, visceral, um, form of anthropology. You know, you get to sort of excavate um, a, a character, a set of relationships uh, and the circumstances that they live in. You know, it involves dance and theatre and, and costume, architecture and random snatches of conversation and they're all channeled into one form and that is a form that I love so much, which is film. And the last 30 years, my passion in the film industry has been the craft of acting. And this passion has led me to seek, seek out roles that can deepen and challenge that craft. And in doing so, you fail, and you fail, and you fail. And sometimes it works. And that is, it's, you know, you can do all the homework in the world, um, and the film can succeed, but it fails to reach an audience. And so I often think about what we what we decide is a successful film, what we decide is a successful performance. Is it one that wins awards like this? Or is it one that, that, that stands the test of time and people discover in 10 years' time? It's so, it's so sort of um, personal uh, in a way. And so um, thank you for uh, that, that painful... <laughs> it's a very big way to look at yourself. I mean, you don't... <laughs> You don't really ever get, your phone just doesn't prepare you for that. So just, yeah. yeah. But it also, I think the gift, I'm a wonderful audience member, by the way. I love going to the theatre. I love going to, to live music and to, um, to dance and to, and to the cinema and just to forget who I am and to, with strangers in the dark, imagine somebody else's ambition. And I think often when we think about what people are trying to do there up on the big screen, it's important to remember, what are they trying to do rather than, do I like it? Do I dislike it? I mean, these things aren't often useful assessments about what is actually people are trying to do up there. Maybe they're trying to do something to, to shift us into uncomfortable and different places. And that is certainly what Todd Field did for me <laughs> and for audiences in TAR. Um, and let, look, let's be frank, I do like being a little bit terrified. Um, but 
It's only such roles that um, that ask you to shift and change, um, and that are as startling and game changing, you know. And they are only as startling and game changing as the stories they sit within, and they're determined by the dance partners that you are lucky enough to find yourself paired with, and they are also dependent upon the delicate dance that you find and make with a director. And I know how I know rare how rare those collaborations are firsthand. And so I accept this honour a hundred million trillion percent in the name of the most generous, inspiring of collaborators that I have ever had the great good fortune to work with, and that is Todd Field. Um, because Tar consumed me whole and it spat me out and I'm not quite sure where I am. Um, <laughs> but it shifted my sense of what is possible. And I think that's, that's the thing about being terrified. I mean, in a safe environment, of course, but being creatively terrified, creatively confronted. You can go one of two ways. You can get defensive or you can run towards the opportunity that that presents you. And I, I think if you do that, whether it succeeds or whether it fails, you'll be changed by it. So thank you, Todd, for profoundly changing me in ways um, that I am yet to understand. And thank you to all those who set sail into to the uncharted waters uh, on SS Field. Um, to mention a few, I mean, the cast, of course, and Hilda Gonestotier, a wonderful composer, working with her on working out what, what Tar's composition was, was so important to understanding who the character was. To Monica Willey, who's one of the world's great editors, to Florian Hofmeister, our DP, to Marco Bittner-Rossner, who um, extraordinary production designer. We kept losing locations and he was endlessly inventive. To Bini Diagola, the costume designer who I worked with on Manifesto, and Mrs. America, she's wonderful. And to the Dresden Philharmonic Orchestra. I cannot believe that I had the opportunity to make music with those, to play Mahler with them. Oh my God, unbelievable. And thank you, thank you, thank you to the Santa Barbara Film Festival and to you, audiences, which is why we do this in the first place. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.